Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, and a servant of Christ, Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas sends greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her, home, in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church at Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own, in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's just bow in prayer, shall we? Father, we pray now that as uh, we all uh, come to consider your word, uh, both here and next door in the Sunday school, that uh, you would be, by your spirit, revealing your truth to us, that we would live more godly lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you feel about the communications revolution that, uh, that we are all living through? It's true, isn't it? Uh, if you want to uh, send, uh, if you want to write something and send it to someone these days, uh, you're very likely to do so via email or via text message on your mobile phone or via a um, Facebook message. Uh, it's a, quite a revolution that we're living through, although the teenagers in my household tell me that... Um, uh, teenagers don't send emails anymore. Uh, they say, Dad, emails? Uh, that is just so last century uh, because they all use SMSs and um, Facebook messages. I'm old-fashioned. I still use emails. In fact, I, I uh, did a check of my email inboxes uh, and over the last seven days, I've received well over 100 emails sent to me, which I'm mostly glad to receive because it's kind of the way that I do, uh, do ministry and, uh, and so on. Although I must admit, you know, when I want to have a, 
personal uh, communication between people, I'd much rather sit down and have a cup of coffee and have a chat. But um, if someone really wants to make sure that what they write to me is actually read by me, uh, you know what the best method is that they can use? Snail mail. You, you remember that? Um, ink on paper. Um, a letter in an envelope in my letterbox. I get so excited when I hear the guy on the bike come around and I run out there and I open up the letterbox and there's all these bills and things, but then I'll find one handwritten in ink addressed to Scott. I go, wow. And the chances of me reading that as opposed to the 100 emails that I receive, much, much higher. So there's a tip for you. But as I say, I'm more likely to, uh, uh, far more happier to uh, go out for coffee and have a chat. But you know what? We're not the only... Uh, can I say something off the record? Is it possible to put the pause button there for a moment? Um, <clears throat> uh, one of our kids went on a pastor's kids camp recently and they were asked uh, to share in ways that their father has embarrassed them in the congregation. And uh, uh, there were some real doozies, I tell you, but Alyssa said uh, the most embarrassing thing is she arrives early and sits out there in the crater and watching the television and hears her father singing. So embarrassing. <laughs> anyway, sorry, back to the passage. Okay. Um, what I want to say is that we're, we're not the only generation that has lived through a communications revolution because... The Romans, they brought about a revolution in communication in their day, 2,000 years ago. Because the Romans, they built roads. And they built roads which connected the, the towns, the cities, the provinces of the empire. Uh, roads which meant that people could now travel by land more freely across these various nations that had been incorporated into the Roman Empire. Roads which meant that freight could be transported over land more easily and roads that meant that letters could be written and could be delivered. It was a revolution in uh, the days of Paul. And over the last few months we've been reading one of those letters uh, written by the Apostle Paul, who was in prison at the time, probably in Rome, and written to a group of Christians in a little Turkish town called Colossae. Well, today we come to the closing section of that letter. So can I get you to open up your Bibles at Colossians chapter 4 on page 835? And as you'll see, if you peruse that passage, it's the kind of passage that if you were reading it at home, now let's be honest here, if you were reading this passage at home, would you be tempted to kind of skim over it a little bit? I think so. I think more likely than some other passages, because what is it? Well, it's, uh, it's some, some final greetings, and it's uh, some names, some uh, lovely but difficult to pronounce Greek names, and it's just the closing off of the letter. But 
When you look closely at it, there is incredible value in these verses. Uh, Value for you and for me. Let me start by just making a few general comments about the, about, uh, the section which teaches a bit about letter writing in the first century. And uh, firstly, in ancient culture, letters would always finish with, uh, with some greetings and also with a blessing. Uh, Paul was a man of his culture and he follows that practice here. Uh, his last words are a, a Christian blessing. He uh, Uh, He wishes God's grace to be upon them. Notice in verse 18 that Paul had actually dictated this letter to a scribe who had written most of the letter, but he finished it off with his own handwriting. Um, We're not entirely sure why, but it may well be that Paul wanted to authenticate this letter for those, anyone who would have known what his handwriting was like. Uh, We know that in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul remarks that there had been some people who'd gone to the Thessalonian Christians claiming to have come from Paul and claiming to have had a letter written by Paul and Paul says, you know what, they're forgeries. But he says, I'm writing this closing greeting in my own hand. Secondly, in verse 16, Paul uh, asks them to to make sure that this letter uh, is also read in the church in Laodicea. Laodicea is a town about 16 kilometres west from Colossae. And this is really important because it teaches us something about uh, the way that Paul's letters were used. Uh, it was often the case that, well, well it was the case that uh, Paul's letters were to be copied uh, by hand meticulously and sent to other Christians in other places who would have them read in the congregation. They would copy it by hand. And they'd send another one off to another congregation and so on. And exponential growth meant that uh, very, very quickly uh, copies and copies of copies and copies of copies of copies of Paul's letters just flourished uh, around the uh, Greco-Roman world. And that's of great value to us because we've, we've got it here, haven't we? Uh, 2,000 years later, we can be reading this letter to the Colossians. Notice also that there was a letter that he'd written to the Laodicean church, which was to be read in the Colossian church. Now, we don't know what happened to the Laodicean letter. Does it, in, in your, anyone have a letter, Paul's letter to the Laodiceans in there? No, you don't, do you? Uh, that was lost under God's sovereignty, but this letter we do have. And so let's have a look at uh, what he says in this letter. And he starts off uh, in um, verses 7 to 9 uh, by telling the Colossians a little bit about the two men who were to deliver the letter. Uh, their names were Tychicus and Onesimus. Uh, we read about them in verse 7. Let me read that. He says, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances 
and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. This is like a covering note for the letter, uh, telling the Colossians about the people, the men who are delivering the letters, the letter. Now, it must have been great to have received a letter from the Apostle Paul, but the icing on the cake is the men who have delivered the letter. Because these are men who have been with Paul, these are men who are able to share with the Colossian church how Paul is going and tell them about the ministry that's happening and uh, these, these men are able to personally encourage their hearts. Paul has some good things to say about these postmen. Check out what he says about Tychicus. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and a fellow servant. Now, isn't that a great rap to have received from the Apostle Paul? Actually, um, a, a closer translation of the original uh, means that uh, that verse could be translated uh, as saying that Tychicus is a dear brother, a faithful servant, because after all, that's what a minister is, a servant, and a fellow slave. Uh, the the word in the Greek there is the word doulos. Many of us have heard that. There's a ship called the doulos, isn't there? And uh, uh, the word doulos typically means slave, but can be translated as servant. So I think you could translate this as saying that uh, Tychicus is a dear brother, a faithful servant, and a fellow slave. Now, what about Onesimus? Does Paul call Onesimus a servant or a slave? Yes or no? No, he doesn't. Uh, Onesimus is described as being a faithful and dear brother who is one of you. Where do you think Onesimus came from? What town? Colossae. He's one of them. Uh, actually, these men brought two letters from Paul with them on their journey. Uh, the, the first, of course, was this, this letter, the, the letter to the church. But uh, the other letter was a, a letter to an individual in the church, uh, a man whose name was Philemon. Uh, we still have that letter. It's in your Bibles just before Hebrews. Philemon was a Christian man who owned slaves. Uh, a few weeks ago, we saw that that was very common for middle-class people to own slaves. Philemon was an owner of slaves. Uh, and amongst his slaves was a slave by the name of Onesimus, who had escaped. And as an escapee on the run, Onesimus had come across the Apostle Paul. And what happens to you when you come across the Apostle Paul? You're bound to hear the gospel, aren't you? Onesimus heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul, believed the gospel, he became a Christian, and he became for Paul a, faithful, a dear and a faithful brother. Now I suspect 
that the reason why Paul does not refer to Onesimus as a slave here is because of what we learned about a few weeks ago, that uh, the, the Christian who is a slave when they're called uh, is now the Lord's freed man, freed from their slavery to sin, freed in order to live for the Lord. Remember Paul says that the, uh, uh, the one who is a free man when they're called now becomes the, Lord, the Lord's slave. It's a wonderful way that Paul uses the slave and free man idea. And I suspect that that's why he's not referring to Onesimus here as a slave or a servant. He is now the Lord's freed man, freed from his sin. Now what's happened is that Paul has sent Onesimus back to his master, to Philemon, with a letter in hand. And uh, uh, if you get a chance to read Philemon later on this afternoon or during the week, that'd be great. It's one of the shortest books in the Bible. You can read it in a few minutes. You can tick that one off as a book of the Bible read. Okay, It's a very, very short book. But in the, the letter to Philemon, Paul says to Philemon, he says, Hey, Philemon, when Onesimus left you, he was a slave. I'm sending him back to you as a dear brother in Christ. And then he goes on to say, And by the way, Onesimus... And that name actually means useful. Onesimus has been extremely useful to me in my ministry. So I'm not commanding you, but would you mind sending him back to me? Um, And by the way, you do owe me a favour or two. (laughs) Such was Paul's love for uh, Onesimus. So Tychicus and Onesimus, they were the postmen. Then in verses 10 onwards, Paul then passes on greetings from uh, Christian brothers who are with him, who are acquainted with the church in Colossae. And he does so in two sections of uh, three, two sections of threes. The first three are in verses 10 through to 11. And these are the only Jewish Christians who are working with Paul and have been a great comfort to him. There's there's Aristarchus. That's a great name for a Jewish man, isn't it? It's a Greek name. Many of the the Jews living in Gentile territory gave themselves Greek names. So there's Aristarchus. Uh, And and Aristarchus is in jail uh, because he, like Paul, preached the gospel. Now that's commitment to Christ, isn't it? Uh, There's a man named Jesus who's called Justice. Uh, It was a very common name in the first century, Jesus. Although about the middle of the second century is when Jewish mums and dads started to stop calling their little boys Jesus because they could see how popular Jesus the Christ was and they didn't want their kid to be connected. Um, So there's uh, Aristarchus, there's... Jesus, And then there's Mark. Take a look at what Paul says about Mark in verse 10. I'll read verse 10. He says, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. 
Now, it sounds like there's a bit of an issue there with Mark uh, that uh, they had to receive instructions that they were to welcome him if he came. We don't know if Mark ever came to them or not. But the reason for this is because in, in Acts chapter 15, verse 34, uh, Paul and Mark had been on a missionary journey together. And whilst they were on the journey, uh, Mark decided to back out. He deserted Paul and he went back home. Uh, it wasn't something Paul was particularly happy about and I guess Paul felt a bit left left in the lurch. It was something which caused a dispute between Paul and Mark's cousin Barnabas. Barnabas, of course, means encouragement uh, because Paul and Barnabas were going on a missionary trip and Barnabas said, say, said hey, how about we bring Mark along? And, uh, and Paul said, no, uh, he's not faithful, he's not reliable. Took him before and he backed out, left me high and dry. And that caused a sharp dispute between Paul and Barnabas and they went their own separate ways. Well, the good news is this, that by the time Paul writes, writes this letter to the Colossians, it's all good uh, between him and Mark and, of course, with Barnabas as well. And, he, and so he writes to the Colossians and he says, look, you might have heard stuff about Mark, but he's rebuilt his reputation and uh, there has been forgiveness and reconciliation and he's a good guy. So if he comes to you, then roll out the welcome mat for him and accept him as a brother in the Lord. That's a good example of Christian forgiveness and reconciliation. Then in verses 12 through to 14, Paul sends greetings from three Gentile brothers. Uh, one is Dr. Luke, another is Demas, but Paul singles out Epaphras. Epaphras is also a Colossian. Uh, you might remember from chapter 1 that it was Epaphras who first preached the gospel in Colossae. What does Paul say about Epaphras? Well, verses 12 to 13. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Epaphras is a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus who wrestles in prayer for them. Now, what the, the idea of someone wrestling in prayer, what, what sort of image does that conjure up in your minds? Maybe... Someone like Jacob wrestling with God. It's, it's, it's a struggle, isn't it? It's a, not that it's a struggle for him to start praying, but, it's a, but his prayers, uh, uh, they, they, are, they, are, they are a consuming struggle. This is not just a, like ticking off the prayer list or saying a quick good morning and a good night to God. Uh, no, this is actually a, a, a struggle. This is... 
This is consuming. And it needed to be, and it needs to be for us as well, by the way. But in this situation, it needed to be because Epaphras was very, very deeply concerned about what was going on in the Colossian church. He was deeply concerned for their spiritual well-being because although the Colossians had started well, there was a threat. These Colossian men and women were people who had heard the gospel through Epaphras and they had trusted in the death of Jesus as being the full and the sufficient and the complete sacrifice for sins. And they had trusted in the resurrection of Jesus as being the, 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 uh, uh, the way and the assurance that uh, they were now in a relationship with God which would go on for all of eternity. But that was under threat. For there were false teachers who were on the horizon and hovering around the church and may have even penetrated into the lives of people on the periphery of the church. False teachers who, as we saw in chapter 2, were saying, uh, faith in Jesus, that's good. But it's not enough. You need more. Uh, They wouldn't say it as explicitly as that. They wouldn't say that faith in Jesus is not enough, but implicitly they were saying that if you want to be the full Christian, fully acceptable to God, then there are certain things that you need to do and certain things that you need to experience. Um, You need to obey certain rules and regulations. Eat some foods. Don't eat other foods. Uh, Observe certain holy days. Don't observe other days. Secondly, they said to them that it's also not a bad idea to start treating your body harshly. Uh, going through some sort of a physical punishment as a sacrifice that you would be making to God. And by the way, uh, have you had a decent spiritual experience lately? Been up into the heavenlies? Have you seen angels worshipping? Well, come and follow us. Uh, we'll show you the way. That was the nature uh, of the, the, the threat to the Colossian church. And throughout this letter, we've seen that Paul has been consistently saying, no, 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 no. You are complete in Jesus. Because Jesus is God the Son. In chapter 1, Paul has been saying, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. And God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to make peace. Peace between us and God through his blood that has been shed on the cross. And he raised him from the dead again so that he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father and we can have that assurance of the relationship that we have with God through Jesus which will go on for all of eternity. And so... If you have trusted in Christ, then you've got everything. You're not lacking something. You are complete. Now, you and I uh, will sometimes come across this sort of thing even today. 
it's not just a first century heresy. It's the sort of thing that has been evident right throughout Christian history. And so you and I will come across people who, well, they're not going to say to you explicitly faith in Christ is not enough. But what they will be saying is things like, um, look, if, if you want to be truly obedient to God, if you want to be the, the true Christian, then it's imperative that you must be baptised. And we've baptised Charlotte today. Uh, would Charlotte be any different in God's sight if we hadn't baptised her? No. But I know of people who have said that you cannot be saved unless you're baptised. Uh, sometimes, and you may even hear this locally, uh, people be saying that um, in order to be a fully-fledged Christian, then you've got to go to church on one day, but not on other days, on specific days of the week. Uh, we've uh, uh, seen evidence of people being taught that if they want to be the full thing, then they've got to go on certain religious diets, um, eat certain foods, don't eat other foods. And this is all here in Port Macquarie, uh, even today. The big one, of course, is that in order to be a full Christian, then you must have a certain spiritual experience. Uh, you must be baptised in the Holy Spirit, which we are. If we people who are putting our faith in Christ, we're already baptised in the Holy Spirit, but they say, no, do you speak in what they consider to be tongues or something of that nature? And if you don't, then you're not the full Christian. As I've said to you before, I've been told by people that I am not a Christian because I do not have those spiritual experiences. And you know what happens? These kind of folk, what they do is they, they, they nudge Christ off his central point in our lives and they lure us away from the gospel. They lure us away from trusting wholly in Christ so that we end up trusting in the thing which we do or the regulation that we follow or the experience that we think that we've had. And those who uh, listen and go along with this, they end up with a faith which is, is wobbly uh, and, and immature and they lack assurance they lack assurance of salvation because they can never know whether or not they've done enough. Or it leads to pride because they think that they have done enough. But what about Epaphras? What did Epaphras wrestle in prayer about? Well, in verse 12, he prayed three things. I want you to look at verse 12. He prayed three things. He prayed, firstly that instead of being wobbly in the gospel, that they would stand firm. He prayed, secondly, that instead of being immature, that they would be mature. He prayed, thirdly, that instead of being uncertain of their salvation, that they would be fully assured. Standing firm, certain and assured. Because God the Son died and rose for them. And there is no further religious deed or experience that is needed. If you trust in Christ, you have it all. And that, friends, is to be the anchor of our lives, yours and mine. Now, Paul obviously says nothing good about the false teachers, doesn't even mention them, who they are. 
But he's got plenty good to say about men like Tychicus and Onesimus and Aristarchus and Epaphras and so on. And these are not just lovely but difficult to pronounce Greek names. These are what I've described in your outlines. These are good connections. These are good people to be connected with because they are faithful and dear brothers. They are slaves of Christ. They are willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Now, the Romans had revolutionised their world. They'd connected people and places with roads. But as Paul finishes this letter, what he's doing is he's connecting the Christians, not with false teachers, not with people who are going to be unhelpful to them, not with people who've got something better to offer other than Jesus. He wants to connect them with faithful and reliable Christians. And friends, uh, we need to be wary of preachers today and authors, people we'll see on television and listen to on the radio and so on, and who write Christian books when they are people who do not focus on the gospel. These are not good people to be connected with. Um, For example, those who teach that, that God wants you to go further than the gospel and he wants you to be successful in business and he wants you to become wealthy and make lots of money so that you can give it all away or at least give some of it away and so on. No, Paul connects the Colossians with Christian servants who, to the very best of his knowledge, were good people to be connected with. And I say to the very best of his knowledge because Demas, who he mentions here, we know later backslid, got into materialism and deserted Paul. But to the best of his knowledge, these are the guys to be connected with. People have been faithful to the truths of the gospel People who've not used the gospel for their own advantage, but who work hard and suffer, who wrestle in prayer, and who, like Aristarchus, are even willing to go to prison for the sake of the gospel. And so the implication, value them, listen to them, be like them as they imitate Christ. Well, that's the end of the letter. That's the end of our series. Except for one little thing, and I think I think this is really touching, actually, and that's the way that Paul finishes off everything that he says. He doesn't say a whole lot about himself in this letter, does he? Right at the very end, there he says, "Oh, and by the way, remember me in my chains." It's uh, touching in its simplicity and its profundity that he's in prison, writing to them this wonderful letter. Well, let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for uh, preserving this uh, letter in Scripture and uh, we thank you for the deep and profound truths that we've learnt of who Christ is and what he has done for us and how we ought to be living lives that reflect that in our relationships as we've looked at in this series, our relationships in our marriages our relationships with our children, our relationship in the workplace. And as we saw last uh, Sunday, our relationship with all those who are outside of Christ, uh, how our conversation must be always full of grace and yet seasoned with salt, and how we must be looking for opportunities to share uh, the gospel with others. 
But we thank you for this uh, final passage and its, uh, uh, its encouragement to us to be uh, connected with those who are faithful and dear brothers who will actually nourish and, and nurture us in the gospel. And uh, Father, we, uh, we, we thank you also for the warning that we've received throughout Colossians. And we pray that we would be people who do stand firm in the gospel, uh, who are mature in our walk with you. And uh, Father, that, uh, that we are people who because of the, uh, the sufficiency of Christ are assured of our salvation. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.